Warning, the following podcast contains naughty words and opinions. While neither of these has been shown to be hazardous, you should be aware that exposure to both has been known to cause chafing. Apply only to available ear-shaped head holes. Cease insertion if resistance is met. Welcome to Side Slop, the podcast we do whenever the fuck we want, however the fuck we want. Today I've got with me Bootsy. Hello, how's it going? And I've got Peter. Hey, guys. Today we are here to talk about a movie that I've always thought of as Bootsy's favorite film, and that is Cemetery Men. Hey, Boots, can you just do me a favor and give me the cocktail napping description of what we just watched? Cemetery Man, a very hard movie to try to brief explanation, but it's a man who lives in a house in a cemetery. He's a caretaker, and people come back to life after seven days. He refers to them as returners. But he also uh, has a few love interests, three to be precise, all played by the same actress, but it's never really said that they're the same woman. He reacts to her reappearance as if she is the same woman. So, you know, it's kind of the um, the idea that she's almost like a phantasm haunting him. Yeah, she, he falls in love with her on first sight three times. Yeah, and well, and she makes comments at him that it's like, I've known you forever, I've been in love with you forever kind of thing. Yeah. Going back to earlier before her arrival, I mean, I basically would say, like, he's kind of dealing with this problem of the returners on his own. Like, the, the city, nobody else knows about it except Nagi, his assistant. And uh, he's got a friend at sort of the clerk's office who he talks to, but, you know, they don't have a really close relationship. They just kind of kill time with each other i guess on the phone yeah they talk on the phone a few times in the movie and it seems like every time they talk our main character francesco is busy murdering zombies but with with that setup you know then basically you get the entrance of the the triple love interest which is do you, does anybody remember her name anna fauci right but her character name is like they, they don't really she. refer to her by name she they call yeah she's credited as she yeah the third one they actually I forgot her name now, but the third one, she actually does have a name. She shows up, though, as the widow of an old man that she's had a very passionate love affair with. And then she shows up again as, like, the clerk for the new mayor later in the film. And what was, what was the third one? The young girl, the uh, college girl. Yeah, the college girl ends up being a prostitute. Basically, though, in her first incarnation, they have an affair, and then her husband wakes up, and she gets bitten. And then when she wakes up, Francesco shoots her, which, in theory, she shouldn't come back after that. And that's that's kind of where things start getting, I don't know, I would say, more symbolic. You know, up until that point, it seems like it's kind of a fairly standard zombie film in the vein of something like Dead Alive, where it's like slightly comedic. The comedy to it is very kind of like drawl sense of humor. Yeah, very like um, macabre. Yeah. The beginning part, he says he's, uh, you know, his name is Francisco de la Morte, which is, he's even amidst the strange name. He's like, I've often thought of having it changed. Andre would be nice, for example, and you know, instead of <laughs> right. changing the of death part. <laughs> I think being named like of death would be pretty sweet, personally, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means you have to work at a cemetery then. Yeah, right. That, like towards the, uh, what, middle-ish, towards the end there, he mentions that his uh, mother, her maiden name was Delamore, which is where we get the title, uh, Delamorte right. Delamore, which is uh, of death, of love. Yeah. Fancy there with your full translation. I, I just Googled that. 
did not come up with that. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> it, it could be a play on words. It could be the love of death or the love or the death of love. Tying that into sort of his failed romance with she, he believes that he has mistaken her for a returner and then actually killed her, which sort of drives him into this sort of existential despair, which is sort of where he's at when he meets her the second and third times. Yes. So he's there with his uh, assistant, Nagi. Mm-hmm. Never really says much. He just kind of grunts and things. <laughs> he has entire conversations with him, though, with Nagi just responding, and then he's acting like Nagi's saying something besides going, nah. Yeah. Exactly. It's like like they have just an understanding, you know. <laughs> it, do you think that maybe that um, that character in Hot Fuzz was based roughly on Nagi? <laughs> Narp. <laughs> right. Could be. I was curious at some point, I want to see what you guys think of Nagi and Francesco in relation to being two separate people in the ending. Specifically, what I wanted to ask you guys, um, and Boots, I think you always have good opinions on these, so I wanted to see, because I'm not real quite sure myself, but I, I kind of feel like they're the same person. So Nagi only says, like, the one little word answers right. and stuff. And at the very end, Nagi, after getting hit, you know, says a full sentence, and then Francesco says back to him, like, yeah. So it's, I'm kind of wondering, is it, is he all in his head? Is he talking to himself? What do you guys think? Well, it it could be that, you know, they're the same person or that maybe Francisco doesn't exactly, actually exist. That would go in the the whole thing of like him being, him and Nagi doing the same thing. But he also had his friend that he was filing paperwork for took credit for some murders he commits later in the movie. Well, and see, there, therein again, I, I wonder if Franco is actually him. Yeah, and that's where I'm thinking, like, he's more a representative of something than an actual person. I mean, the movie's supposed to be kind of tongue-in-cheek, but also a little metaphorical, and it doesn't have clear answers. So there's, there's you know, right before he, the, the part with Nagi where they switch places, Death confronts him and says, you know, where do you think you're going when you don't know the difference between life and me? I don't have a good answer, I guess, for the for the death line, but like going back to the the concept of like if they're the same person, and maybe I'm being too literal, but the snow globe element is sort of brought in at the opening credits and then repeated at the ending credits immediately after that sort of switch between those two characters. I, I sort of thought to myself, like, maybe there is sort of a metaphorical interchangeability of parts since in the snow globe, you know, the returners would be coming back. The snow itself was coming back. The spirits were sort of floating around. They reach the edge. They realize that they're in sort of this purgatory-like environment. And it's like maybe the elements keep being shifted sort of as sort of a literal version of that that trapped inside of a snow globe uh, thing like that it's been shaken literally at various at points you know yeah it might be a little too literal even i think for my taste but um, that, that was one idea i did have about sort of the interchangeability and then the returners and and all of that and of course the coffin um that they're carrying out you know slides off the globe so it's like is is that maybe a sort of a commentary on the fact that they're all sort of trapped in a maybe a purgatory-esque, you know, existence, you know, that, that this is maybe the afterlife. Yeah. yeah, maybe he doesn't really know that he's a returner himself, kind of watching over all that. Right. Did you guys, um, did you take anything new away from it this time? Yeah, I've definitely seen this before. Um, Boots introduced me to this. I think you said that too. Mm-hmm. Rewatching it again, I don't know that I really picked up on too much more that I hadn't seen. The Anchor Bay version that I have uh, has a making of uh, called Death is Beautiful, like 28 minutes. I don't know if you guys have seen that. No, I haven't. I, I was hoping it would add something to it. 
the only thing I really learned, which I kind of knew a little bit about, but um, not so much in depth, but it was based on a novel, which was written by a guy who also had been writing a comic book called Dylan Dog. The novel and the comic were kind of the same thing. They were different, but I guess they're uh, like the Francesco character is taken from the comic book and in a different setting in the book book <laughs> um, for this movie. You know, after seeing that making of and things like that, it really, I started thinking about some of the scenes and the way it's done and how it, you know, a lot of it doesn't maybe have clear answers like you were saying a minute ago. And that's that's not a bad thing, but it, it is very comic book-like kind of because you could have little segments that are a little disjointed from the rest of things and they maybe they don't really matter to an overall story. Maybe there is no story to really tell. They're just little adventures or something. Sort of like uh, vignettes. Yeah. Knowing that it was related to a comic book is kind of interesting because the, the movie is extremely visually told. I, I think that's sometimes something you get from comic book adaptations where they actually adapt the book itself because comic books, if you think about it, are kind of like storyboards. And so you kind of have a visual component baked into the film. So some of the camera work was, was very creative and, and striking, maybe because of that. Oh, very well done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the colors and everything, too. Lots of uh, how there's like all the blue lighting and red lighting out in the cemetery at night with all the fog and everything. It's very pretty visuals, like you said. Very, uh, You remember those if you remember nothing else from it. <laughs> <laughs> really good camera work. And there's some stuff that's like obviously supposed to look bad, like the little spirits on strings where you can, it's purposeful that you can see them on strings. Oh, the, the little charcoal marshmallow things that they're uh, interacting yes. with. <laughs> it was kind of funny because when those came up, I was like, I wasn't sure whether to laugh or to, you know, try and accept them. And then the characters are kind of having this like comic moment with them. So it kind of made them okay, you know? Yeah, I looked those up. Those were actually, um, those are like swamp lights, basically, is what it is. Here it is. They're called Ignis Fatis, I guess. My uh, Latin's not very good, but it's it's fool's fire, which is naturally occurring fire, like uh, light that sometimes is seen during twilight in swamps. So maybe think of Men in Black. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, I guess, what those are supposed to be. Because I, I, like you had said, I always kind of thought of them as like spirits or something, you know, floating around. Because he said they'll watch or something like that. He made some comment like that. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's it's that's what it's supposed to be. I think he actually names them and I think you're right, but it's like the way that the movie is treating them, I was like half expecting them to be like a Miyazaki sort of bizarro dream like creature that was coming out of the forest, you know. Well and they seem to fly away when he shoot them away. Right. Like they purposely were Something that had a consciousness. Well, I was just going to say, another thing I did learn from that making of that I watched, that Death is Beautiful thing on the DVD, was uh, that the ossuary that they go into when she says she wanted to see the ossuary and he said they have a very nice one, that was a real ossuary. And I guess some of the bones and stuff in there are real. And uh, they like there was a whole story about them where uh, one of the crew had taken some of the bones home overnight and then had like a whole weird thing happen. They were saying there was like a haunting from it and all this kind of thing. But I thought that was even creepier in the movie because it's cool in the movie how she she's all into it and you know it's weird it's she wants to see the ossuary and she takes off her shoes and just walks into the water and stuff there where all these you know bodies are rotting you know letting all the flesh fall off the bones and then to know that it was a real one is kind of even creepier i don't why did the crew member take some bones home with them i wouldn't worry about that man video <laughs> people are weird <laughs> 
Just like decorations and shit. <laughs> this will be cool. I'm going to take some bones. <laughs> they, they were having an Ozzy Osbourne party. It's, it's no big deal. Which is funny you mentioned that. I don't know if you noticed any time a motorcycle was on screen, it was playing Ozzy Osbourne's Hellraiser. I, I wasn't sure what the song was, but it felt extremely familiar because... <laughs> Like the, I don't know how it was in your in your mix, but like they they bring the start of the song up real loud, and then it ducks down for the dialogue pretty quick. So like it was just enough that I was like, I know that. Wait, it's gone. Oh, so that's actually an Ozzy Osbourne song. I didn't know that part. I didn't know that either. I saw it in some trivia I was reading about. It. I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. But I just thought maybe it was a you know how they'll do stuff that sounds familiar but is original, you know, for the movie kind of a thing. Yeah, maybe because it was Italian, they were just like, whatever, we'll steal that. But I was really confused the first time I saw this movie why she was so aroused by the basically the place, the room that you store bones in. But if she is, you know, she returns three times, obviously. So maybe this first time that he meets her, she's already a returner, sort of the way that you said that maybe he's a returner and he doesn't know it. You know, like like maybe this connection to death is already established before the movie even begins, which is part of the reason why maybe the purgatory-esque, you know, elements at the end could could make sense. Well, that's an interesting point that you brought up because they could have already known each other. We just came into the story as it already existed. So maybe this is that could have been the fifth or sixth time they've met, even though it was the first time for us. Yeah. When we start the story could actually be where he's starting into his existence in purgatory, too. Right. So she might be somebody he knew in life or, or, or something like that. And so maybe he doesn't have a direct memory of her, but he has sort of a uh, star-crossed lover's kind of soul kind of connection. Yeah. If we think about this as a purgatory-type scenario, and he's just entering purgatory and we're coming in with him, what then would be the symbolic meaning of the changeover at the end? Would that mean that he has come to a greater understanding that his soul has made progress towards you know because purgatory is it's as i understand it it's temporary it's where you go sort of heaven and hell's waiting room right like (laughs) yeah maybe somebody with more education in catholicism could explain that but as i understand it you work your way out of purgatory eventually or, or when judgment day comes you're taken out of purgatory so what would the transition mean if if this were a purgatory isn't the idea of purgatory that you have to sort of improve to get out of it and that it could be possible someone would be stuck in purgatory they actually get worse or just fester in it oh see i guess i i didn't realize there was a getting worse option but i guess you're i mean that would make sense that it could work both ways i, I mean i could be wrong on that I, <laughs> i'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt as far as i'm concerned you're the pope of this podcast so <laughs> the podcast that's right i just i nominated you and until i f- see the white smoke you're there so but okay, okay so he's if he's turning into Nagi, like Nagi was, he was sort of an emotionally pure and noble character aside from his bizarre infatuation with the with the head. <laughs> I mean, he he fell in love with a head, which I'm going to say is a, a strike. But the mayor's daughter, who was very too young for him, well, definitely. But like, he had this sort of innocence about him. Does that make sense? Yeah, he did. And there's another facet to him that's interesting, too, that they bring up a few times because so he's assumed to be kind of an idiot through the whole movie, kind of stupid. At least that's how Francesco treats him, which you could say if you wanted to say maybe that is part of him treating a part of his brain that way or whatever. But anyway, um, 
so like at, at one point, uh, there's a fractured, a broken skull on uh, Francesco's desk that he is attempting to put together. And Nagi just sits there and puts it right together. But before Francesco comes in and sees it, he tears it apart real quick. Right. And then he makes some, you know, crack at him about it being too hard. So throughout the movie, you know, he treats him that way. But we actually get little glimpses that he's not as stupid or maybe he has some ulterior motive or, you know, maybe he's playing stupid or something yeah so it's like is he a wise man playing a fool to to guide francesco to some higher understanding of his own existence or is he you know i mean like because it almost seems like he's taking care of francesco at points but they have a very parallel story too where they both fall in love and then lose their love and then you know so it's it's kind of hard i guess for me to pin down but i feel like there's something important in the the smarter idiot character that is sort of morally pure Nagi seems less attached to the past yeah than Francisco that's does. true he's living in the moment I mean that's why uh Della Morte you know sees like practically the same woman three times he's li- kind of stuck in the past and he's obsessed with the phone book and he doesn't even want like not one part I thought was really funny early in the movie he says he's only read two books and one of them was a phone book and then Nagi an almost half hour hour later brings out the books to throw away and he's like what are you doing you can't get rid of these these are classics yeah, so right. that was actually, just like, that's the next uh, bullet point I was going to bring up at some point for you about that scene, because I, I wanted to know what you guys thought about the phone book thing. Like, what what would that mean, do you think? I mean, obviously he was crossing off the names of the people that entered the cemetery that he had to, to kill when they returned. I don't know, it was like he was using it as a, as a record book for, like, who he had dealt with. Um, so he had, like, a weird, almost psychopath's uh, keepsake thing going on with them. I don't really know what to make of that, but I, I did apply a little bit of like psychopathy to it. Yeah. So uh, uh, from that too, because uh, as, as Boots brought up, when they were burning the old, you know, the classic phone books, in that same scene there, we get the ashes coming up out of it, and they form the the skeletal, you know, the death figure that tells him to stop killing the dead. They're mine. If you don't want right. the dead coming back to life, kill the living, shoot them in the head. And that's when things start to really kind of go off the rails at that point. But it, that all kind of came from the burning of the old phone books, which I thought was kind of interesting. I, f- I feel like there's something there, but I don't exactly know what it is. <laughs> well, when he passed out and he starts dreaming that he's going around shooting people, it was showing their names in the phone book. You're right. Which that scene was so weird because like, he's going around shooting people and he's also mouthing, going, Pow! Each time he shoots, <laughs> it's it's definitely a moment. And that uh, that like almost circus music that's playing, I thought was great. You just you feel like you're kind of like descending into madness with him, if that's kind of what's going on. However, you want to interpret that. <laughs> that's a, actually I forget the name of the piece. That's a classic song that was made in, you know with synthesizers in like the seventies or late sixties. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was also in uh, Clockwork Orange. Oh, okay. Uh, it feels like it had to be on purpose then. Yeah, I, I think it was sort of a nod because Clockwork Orange is a movie that oh, I think a lot of people would not immediately see it, but it's it's a very dark comedy in a lot of ways. And I think that it was sort of trying to recall a similar dark tone. No, I definitely agree. But the, the one other question I had about this scene, he kills the group of people that in the town square were making fun of him for being impotent, and which is apparently a, a rumor that he himself started. Um and then later on, the second appearance of she is attracted to him because of his impotence, I think. Uh, it was the second or the third. But what, what do you think that was symbolic of? The idea that he initially started a, a rumor that he was imp- impotent, 
And then he needed to actualize that impotence to achieve the love that he wanted. I don't know what to make of that myself. I, I mean, her whole attitude was very bizarre of like, she instantly falls in love with him, but she can't, she's afraid of sex or, you know, going real far anyways. Therefore, he's the perfect man because he can't do that. Right. But then she had, she ends up falling for the new mayor who basically, as she put it, raped her. And then they had sex again nicely after that, as she put it, which is just <laughs> which such She a, says was to make it up to her, which is just a bizarre thought. <laughs> yeah, like that. She's the, the most unhealthy mentally of the three uh, women who all look the same or the three incarnations of her. <laughs> well, and it's interesting that we're commenting on the mental health of somebody who is standing next to a guy who murders dead people. So it's like nobody, yeah, yeah. nobody in this movie is particularly good, you know, like health wise. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that whole scene with uh, him going to the doctor and he's like, oh, we all know you don't have. And it's like, wait, is he impotent or do they think he doesn't have a penis? And then like he pulls his pants off and he's like, oh, well, <laughs> and then like it cuts to the like kind of comical, you know, him slapping the glove on and pulling the big scissors out. And then, well, let me I can't do it. Let me just give you this shot. You know? <laughs> it's like, what was this? <laughs> that nasty brown liquid that he's got to inject him with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, is he just giving him tequila or like he's just injecting him with whiskey dick? <laughs> well, <and then> he's, <laughs> Literally. He's so much in pain afterwards back at the house. And then all of a sudden he just comes outside and sees Nagi and he's like, hey, I feel great. And it's just like, OK, what was that? And of course, it's like fortuitous because then, you know, after all that, she's like, oh, I got raped. So now I love dicks. And he's like, oh, well, now it's nice that I still have my dick. Yeah. So. I was going to cut it off for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I was watching this with Desi and I just kind of turned to look at her and I was like, uh, nope, no, that's not a thing that men do for love. <laughs> just, just so you know, not happening. Transition. Did you guys have anything else that you want to do uh, to touch on? I mean, I feel like we've not exactly demystified this, uh, but I think we've pointed at a lot of mystery. We didn't talk about the police officer. He was an interesting character. Yeah, he was, because he, se- he seemed to know what was going on, didn't he? Well, he, he seemed to know what was going on, but also clueless. Like when, uh, when Della Morte killed all those people, he, he's like, no, I think your assistant actually did it. Right. And not you. But he also, he found the check that he wrote for the, the one girl where he paid for sex with a check. Right. He's like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. We're both worldly men, and somebody else already committed the crime. And then he sees the cop again. In the hospital, when after he like killed a bunch of people, and, and <laughs> I'm sorry, it's one of the best lines ever. Where he's like, "Francisco, there's a there's a maniac going around, and he's shooting people. I see you have a gun. Good, you can defend yourself." Yeah, that was great. Now I do wonder though, like with all of that stuff, like in the hospital scene you were talking about, like because we were talking about kind of alluding to the fact that maybe a lot of this is uh, I I was anyway, maybe a lot of this was in his head, and when he's in that hospital, yeah. you know, Franco's in the coma, and he just starts shooting everybody that comes in. Basically, there's like a nun that comes in that he shoots that yells at him for not smoking. He just shoots her right in the eye, and then uh, you know Franco wakes up for a minute, but then he shoots the what he shoots the doctor, he shoots. Um, a nurse, too. Yeah, I thought he shot somebody else, too. Yeah, okay, I guess the nurse, yeah. But anyway, and then he runs away, like you said, and, and the him and the cop have that goofy exchange. But 
my point, I guess, is he never shoots the same type of person twice in a way. And there's one type of person to represent all kinds of different things. So you could almost like interpret it like the uh, the nun was like a spiritual side of him or something. Nagi is his mm-hmm. innocence. Franco was I don't I don't know what you'd want to read into that. But I guess do you kind of see what I'm saying? Like I and maybe the cop yeah. is his paranoia or something, perhaps mm-hmm. that he's trying to keep in the dark. I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of stabbing at things, but. No, I mean, that, I think that actually is a good observation. I like that. After the cop tells him, you know, that he could defend himself, he yells back that he did it. And, like, every, like first the hallway, you know, the stairwell is very busy. And, like, everybody disappeared. And they were off the shot. Right. Once he's yelling that he did it. Yeah, nobody hears him. Yeah. Are you suggesting that when everybody clears out, basically all those people could be like Peter was saying, maybe different parts of his persona and he's afraid to confront them. He's he's trying to confront it, but his own personality won't let him. Maybe he's actually not yelling it or I don't know. I mean, the movie seems like maybe he's taking on other people's stuff that they do and thinking that it's his own or that he's actually somewhat more of like a figment of other people's imagination or the representation of being held, stuck in the past. So you're saying like maybe instead of Franco being a part of Francesco's imagination, it might be the other way around. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's it's t- it's tough to say, really. Like the movie doesn't give you clear answers on any of it. Well, it's very much like Phantasm in that regard, in that it's very like dream world, dream logic. Oh yeah. It doesn't obviously like I don't think want to make a lot of concrete statements, but that's not a weakness, really. It's kind of a strength. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And the other type of interpretation I had for that whole kind of thing that we were just talking about would be, is he a prisoner in his own head for some reason? Maybe he's the one in the coma and all these people that he's interacting with uh, are people that he knew in his real life when he was alive. And he's dealing and working through some issues or something. And all the people are parts of his persona, like I had said, but maybe the world that he's in is self-created or something and everybody that comes through. That's why he keeps seeing the same girl over and over again. Maybe it was somebody that he wronged or something like that, or maybe he raped her and that was part of the whole manhood thing and he feels guilty about it or I don't know. Well, and and to sort of piggyback on what you're, you're saying, and this is mostly a joke, but please don't take it as me discounting what you said. Uh, but that kind of gives it the St. Elsewhere sort of ending where it's the whole world is a snow globe in an autistic child's mind. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> so it's like at that point, do we get looped into the St. Elsewhere verse? You know? <laughs> no, that's, that's true. But I mean, it, it is, I think, uh, sort of that would be, I guess, a more literal psychological equivalent of the purgatory thing that I was driving at from the other elements. So that could be a sort of a similar interpretation but sort of from a more naturalistic perspective you know yeah they still fit they fit the same narrative there yeah depending on you know still in a container in a bubble there you know like the snow globe represents right it's just a question of whether it's a literal purgatory or the purgatory of his mind in a coma you know yeah i mean the movie definitely it's hard to really say with all the dream logic going on Right. I, I still like I, I I forgot about the whole the uh the part where the guy gets buried with his motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, and he comes riding out of the grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, therefore he can explode out of the grave with the motorcycle. Well, he's like conjoined, you know. Well, and I like that he's eating his girlfriend or whatever that was there, like grieving for him, and she's like, you know, my own business. I can be eaten by whoever I want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, double on. He's only eating me. <laughs> Multi-movie, cheeky. 
that was that was one of those moments though that like it it definitely goes a little bit nightmare on elm street for a, for a couple moments and that's that's where one of those <laughs> vignettes kind of makes sense that it's sort of the self-contained comic book thing like you were talking about uh, yeah because that that doesn't yeah. really fit the rest of the the movie at least not the majority of it no and then well now there's another scene that was kind of similar that stuck out to me in the same kind of like almost comedic weird way sort of a thing too is when um the mayor after he gets killed and he goes to climb up onto the roof on that ladder and he yells at him to get down from there or something you can't tell me what to do i'm the mayor <laughs> or something like that. whatever <laughs> their little exchange was yeah he's like you wouldn't have your job it wasn't for me yeah well, and that was yeah. that was one of those moments that i really reminded me of dead alive because the humor was like i don't know very sort of european in that moment but like also over the top and i i really liked it but again you're right it doesn't fit no i get you yeah and i i actually confuse for some reason i confuse the cemetery things all the time from dead alive with this one with the like the i kick ass for the lord for some reason i always (laughs) refer to that as taking place in here (laughs) and vice versa and it's because they are tonally similar for a couple of those like motorcycle things and stuff like that Mm -hmm. i don't know why i just i my brain always mixes them up when i start thinking about them i think that just means that we're right and peter jackson is wrong so <laughs> and the mayor wanting to have his own daughter digged up so he could pose for a picture to be like look i've lost somebody as well well and, and so, so uh, I, I couldn't decide if and he tells like a commentary on politicians or on like the actual like misunderstanding of death kind of thing like when death says you don't get me to to francesco yeah yeah well, and that scene, too, another, like, kind of funny thing where you know stuff's starting to go weird, too, is so Nagi has the head, and obviously Francesco knows that already. He digs it up anyway, and he's just as cool as can be, and you're like, what is he doing? Because as the viewer, you start to get, like, worried for him, like he's going to get found out or get in trouble or something, and then suddenly he digs it up, and then, like, the guy's like, you know, what's going on? And then you hear the, the head yelling for her daddy from Nagi's room, and he goes running off, and, you know, Francesco just lights a cigarette and says, the plot thickens. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, what is that? <laughs> it's so weird. It's a very fatalistic response to like knowing that your, I don't know, like semi-intellectual roommate is has a head and they're about to find it, you know? Like, <laughs> well, I guess it's time for this to happen. Well, and then kind of from there, like things get even like more bizarre than they were up to that point. Like there's just these little like points as everything starts to go a little crazier and crazier like that. And that was definitely one of those moments, I thought, because then, you, you know, next scene you get a head in a TV and then she's flying out of the TV and biting him on the neck. You know, it's like, what is going on? <laughs> well, and, OK, yeah, so how at, is she just point, moving as a head? Well, and th- there's the scene when she first gets out of the grave where Nagi sets her on the ground and she's crawling back to his his little hut. And so it's like, yeah, as he's playing the music for her. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and not to like completely just like go, but this like, to me, that was like very Hong Kong cinema, like Mr. Vampire, like for like just a moment. <laughs> like, yeah, that was good. That's true. So did you guys know uh, Nagi, uh, the, the actor that played him, he's uh, had a couple French rock bands and he was, uh, oh, really? I got, he's like a musician like that, just since we were talking about him playing, you know, the stuff while she was following him. But he was also in, uh, oh, really? I, I don't know if you noticed, but he was in City of Lost Children, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Oh, I, I didn't know he was in any bands, but I did see him in City of Lost Children, which was really good. Yeah, I like that one. Kind of surprised that you're saying he's a musician, not an actor, because I actually, when, when Nagi first gets introduced, like I thought he was just a comedic character. But by the end of the movie, I actually had some like emotional response to him that I was kind of impressed by. Yeah. I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, and I guess, uh, 
for the soundtrack for that too, just since we were talking about music, uh, I get that at some point Tangerine Dream was signed on and then was supposed to make the soundtrack, but they weren't able to because they got busy with another project. I don't know what it was. I didn't look, see I wonder that, if that was guess, near dark. You ever see that? No. I don't, I don't know if the years line up, but Tangerine Dream did the soundtrack for near dark, which is like one of my favorite vampire movies. No, near dark was eighties. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that probably is not the case. Yeah. Cause this was 94. Uh, and then the the sets for the place were built on an uh, actual abandoned cemetery grounds in Italy. Seen that? I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh. What was the obsession with just using real corpses and stuff in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Very Italian, I guess. Yeah, but you know what? The sets, the sets, and the uh, you know the zombie stuff, all the gore and everything like that, all the violence and stuff, whatever. All of it looked very good. None of it, to me, was very cheesy. You know, you you guys mentioned like the. Um, the, the blue lights, you know, the fool's fire or whatever it was, it very obviously had strings on it. The, some of the flies that were flying around on uh, on she when she was dead after he killed her, those clearly had strings on them. But I feel like those had to be on purpose because the rest of the movie was so well done. Like, I feel like there weren't budget constraints for that, I wouldn't think, to where they had to make a fly with a string, but they could do all this other stuff. Oh, no, so I think well. they purposely showed the stuff on strings. Like, it was a stylistic, like, you know, borderline trying to be comedic. Yeah, like a clear choice for it. I will just concur. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another weird little thing I had seen about it was uh, the for the Spanish release, the, they called the name of the movie, they named it My Fiance is a Zombie. Which made me think of like some Japanese comedy. <laughs> was that my my boyfriend's back or something? You know, like there was like a string of super cheesy sort of like zombie return movies in the eighties that were like almost rom coms. You know, yeah, I think that was a Nick Cage movie. That was all I had for uh, trivia stuff, as I usually add to these kind of things. Well, that's pretty cool, though. I didn't know a lot of that, Peter. Just to close out, sort of the the review portion of it. What's the uh, what's the verdict? We traditionally do just sort of a straight up down. So, what's everybody's vote? Definitely a movie that enthusiastic thumbs up. I don't love it as much as I did when I was late teens, early 20s, when I first saw it and was kind of obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. It still holds up and is a lot of fun today. You aren't as impressed with it as you used to be. Do you think that's just your aging and having seen more movies? Or is there something about the movie that you noticed differently this time? I just think, you know, my taste changing, seeing more movies. Okay. You know, a lot of stuff that I was into in that time period, I don't like at all anymore. So... The fact that I still think it's great, it's good enough. And Peter? Uh, so for me, I mean, I would give it an up for sure. Um, I don't think it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie ever. It might not even make it in a top 10 or anything like that. But I do really enjoy the movie. And to, to me, this is one of those movies where I'm not sure what certain parts of it mean or really trying to say, but I kind of don't really care because it's just an enjoyable ride. And I have a lot of fun watching it as I've watched it. And in a way, it's uh, kind of the same reason that I enjoy like David Lynch's movies, because I can sit and think and possibly find meaning or you know something in parts of it. But even if I don't find anything, I'm not disappointed in any parts of this because it was a fun watch. It was well executed, and I just I had a good time with it. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. You know, you can read into things how you want, but ultimately, you know, for certain certain movies, they are clearly enjoyable because of the interpretation or what you get from it or something abstractly if you take them for face value maybe they're boring or they're kind of ridiculous or something whereas this one i think kind of works on both levels for me that's two ups and i'm going to go ahead and 
give it a third. But I think that the dream logic was an asset to the film. And I think that just sitting around talking with you guys about what the movie might have been, you know, symbolically driving at was actually just a lot of fun. And so I think if, you know, it's just a good movie to to watch and and discuss with people afterwards because there's there's plenty to talk about. And uh, yeah, so I say definite up. All right. This might be like our first triple up scenario. I don't know. This might be like the most positive edition of Cinema Slop ever. It's crazy. You've never had a triple up before? Well, I mean, we've only had three guests a couple times, and uh, Mandy was not a triple up, so. Uh... <laughs> what about critters? Uh, honestly, I would have to check. Elisa was really mad that they didn't kick the critters, so. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, critters was a triple up. Damn you, Boots. Why do you know my podcast better than I do? <laughs> Good one. I, I actually listen to it sometimes, you know. That means you get invited back. Aww. Thank you both for coming. Uh, Peter, is there anything that you want to plug while you're here? You can uh, check me out on Twitter if you want to. Uh, Peter's Movie Nights, M-O-V-Y-N-I-T-E-S. I do post on there pretty regularly, just, you know, clips, opinions, whatever, things I'm watching, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, that's about it. Awesome. And Boots, same question to you. Anything that you want to plug? I, I don't have anything to plug no definitely check out super movie ball is also a good you know podcast okay right on uh with that i think we're gonna close it out uh thanks for listening and we love you that's it for this episode of cinema slop you can visit us on the web at cinemaslop.com for show notes and other garbage or if you want to follow us on social media or pitch your walter chang's inventory choices to us you can find us on twitter instagram letterbox all under cinema slop 